Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast and to our thousands of listeners around the world. I'm Jeremy Pound, the magazine's deputy editor, and with me in the studio today are reviews editor Michael Beek and editorial assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hello. So today it's the turn of the December issue. As usual, the issue is packed with features, news, interviews and over 100 reviews. And at this stage, I need to add a little note for our many readers in North America. While the rest of the world will this month be receiving our December issue in the post or finding it in their local shops, our US and Canada readers will be receiving the Christmas issue next, which we have pushed forward in North America to allow it to arrive in plenty of time for the festivities. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you've missed the December issue. You will instead be getting that after your Christmas issue. We have simply swapped the two around in North America. Still with me? Good. So anyway, without further ado, let's get on with the show. So right, as per usual, it's been another busy month in the classical music world and we've brought along just one news story each that caught our eye. But you'll find plenty more, of course, in your December issue when you get it. So let's kick off. Freya, tell us what you've been reading about. Uh, so it's time of year again where we're celebrating the RPS Awards and this year marks the 30th anniversary of the awards. Um, as usual, there are kind of some great names amongst them. Uh, Before over... you go any further, what does RPS stand for? The Royal Philharmonic Society. Thank you. Ten points. So over half the composers shortlisted this year are women, which is great. Um, and surprising that's still considered uh, something worthy of note. Um, but that's great. And they've also got a new award this year, which is the Game Changer Award for an individual group or organisation who has broken new ground in classical music. Excellent. I'm just going to put this all in a little bit of context as well. Of course, the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards have been awarded for now for 30 years, although the society, society itself is, is over 200 years old. Um, and they actually presented what was called a prestigious gold medal from the late 19th century onwards. Um, and it's, uh, it's a big event, actually. It's kind of a lot of people meet at a, a large venue in London. Um, traditionally, until recently, that's been um, taking place in May. But they've now switched it to make it an autumn ceremony, which I think actually is quite welcomed mm. by a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the awards, are, as you say, are very prestigious. They're, they're, and we always cover them each year in, in BBC Music magazine. Yes, which we will be doing in a couple of issues' time, I think. Yeah. Have you got any of the shortlisted artists you're particularly keen to point out who are really exciting you this well, year? Well, I was going to say that I'm very pleased to see uh, the Parrot Orchestra nominated mm. for their series The Nature of Us and also the Bath Philharmonic for their Empowering Young Carers programme, which is really interesting. Mm. And also Mirka Grajanita-Tila is also nominated for Conductor and that's, I think, fabulous because she's so hot at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I was slightly surprised to have not seen her name 
before on that list. Yeah. But yeah, the the composer shortlist I thought was particularly interesting. So Anna Meredith, he's great. Clara Iannotta, uh, Rebecca Saunders and Tansy Davies were some names I was really pleased to see mm-hmm. on there. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, there's quite a, good, a few new, great new exciting programmes that have been finally recognised, which yeah. is brilliant. It should be a good year. And it goes without saying that we will be, of course, reporting on all the winners when they are announced and also um, mentioning them in our future podcasts as well. So, well, my my story is a little bit sadder, I'm afraid, um, and I'm going to preface it with a little bit of music. Well, um, I should imagine opera fans will be already very familiar with that voice anyway. That was the soprano Jesse Norman singing Dich Teure Halle from Wagner's Tannhäuser at the Met in 1987. Um, that is actually um, on a new disc called Black Voices Rise on the Met Opera's own label. And of course, the sad news is that um, Jesse Norman recently died at the age of 74, um, and she is by every single measure, one of the great singers of the opera world of the last 30 years. Not just a a formidable singer, but also a formidable presence who actually tackled prejudice head-on in her own very special way and that she actually managed to have such a stunning career, not just at the Met, but in opera houses across the world. It was testament to actually her own doggedness. Um, She did meet a lot of prejudice early on in her career and she battled it... Um, and she she actually got a, a reputation, I think, um, for being kind of a little bit hard nosed. But she had to be mm. to make her her own way in the in the opera house to kind of overcome these prejudices. Um, she mentioned the likes of Marian Anderson and Leontine Price as being forerunners, um, and that there were very very few African American singers around at the time. And she really kind of took the bull by the horns. And the fact there are a lot more these days are. Is partly thanks to her, I'd say. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And she was heavily involved in education as well and on yeah. all sorts of charitable committees and trusts and things and set up her own school in, in Georgia and Augusta uh, for young for young people to get access to arts for, for, for free. Which mm. It sounds quite crass, but I really enjoyed writing her obituary. <laughs> There's some that I find it's such a... It's one of the, my favourite things to write because actually you really get to kind of just reassess the profound impact these people had on so, and she more than anyone else really yeah. and her voice was so unique and it had that kind of fabulous kind of mezzo grit to it I was about to say it was a very for a soprano voice it kind of had these mm. contralto depths go right up to the soprano range mm. um, I was struggling I wanted to describe her voice myself but I kind of found myself struggling for it so I've actually found a Les's lovely quote which actually from a review in the New York Times in 1992 by Edward Rothstein and I think he captures it exactly as follows he said her voice defines an extraordinary space it has enormous dimensions reaching backward and upward it opens onto unexpected vistas. It contains sunlit rooms, narrow passageways, cavernous halls. Yeah, I think that just lovely. nails it. <laughs> we'll take that. And she, her, her versatility actually was kind of is underestimated by a lot of people. She kind of sung roles from kind of Purcell's Dido right the way through to the likes of Aida, Strauss's Salome. Actually, Strauss roles were kind of some of her finest. Really suited her voice down to the ground, and she will be sorely missed. Yeah, definitely. 
Let's go on to a slightly cheerier story. Michael. Ah, well, this is uh, the news that uh, Royal Parks in London have developed a new app called Music for Trees. So if you download the app, you can visit Regent's Park, and as you walk through the trees, you will hear music. And it's especially commissioned music from young composers from the Royal Academy. Uh, and uh, it, it sounds fascinating. And when the trees overlap, they say, the two tunes, or three tunes even, will all sound together. So I'm wondering whether the composers actually work together to make sure that their pieces worked in that way, or whether you actually do get quite an interesting sort of cacophony of, you know, unrelated music, but it sounds fascinating. And I understand that it's not just a sort of fancy app which gives you kind of a nice floaty sound as you go around. Actually, the isn't there notes appearing yep. on the apps about the composers themselves so you can learn about About, this about music, the composers is... and about the trees so you get to learn all sorts of things. Oh, I love the sound yeah. of that. I love things like that. I think we should do more of that you yeah. know, through cities, even as, you know, picking up buildings and things that happen there and music connected to an idea. So are there kind of little individual pieces of music written for each tree then? Or yep. is it, or is it, oh, wow, that's yeah. I think it's each, each species of tree. So yeah. when you walk past an ash, mm. you can hear a certain piece of music which kind of matches obviously the character of mm. the ash or the mm. colours of the ash. And of course, this time of year, it's going to be particularly magical because you've got those of autumn colours. Um, and yes, and there's another one for a horse chestnut or whatever. And as you walk past them, the notes will drop down. You'll be able to find find out about the, the composer. And these are young composers kind of just beginning their career. So it's yeah. a really good way of giving them yeah. a little bit of publicity Definitely as well. Definitely great exposure for Also, them. yeah, it's, you know, we always wonder how we can make classical music slightly more accessible. And mm-hmm. when it's restricted to the concert halls, that is can be seen as like very inaccessible. Definitely. But this is a perfect way of kind of really taking yourself out and it taps into that mindfulness. Definitely. <laughs> and I love well. that obviously the trees have inspired the music and then you're going to be with the trees yeah. in the open air hearing the music that inspired them. And I love the idea, as you say, of doing it with other settings, with buildings. Mm. You could do it with kind of or other 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 places where you've got trees. For instance, near us, we have the Western Bird Arboretum in South Gloucestershire, yeah. which yeah. would be perfect for something like that. I hope, mm. it's, I hope it's an idea which catches on. Yeah, sold on it. Excellent. Well, so that's a, a brief snapshot of this month's news. Obviously, there's plenty more in the magazine itself. And talking about this month's magazine, let's hear more about that. This month's Now, before we get going on the contents of the magazine itself, don't forget our website at classical-music.com, where you can read all about the latest music happenings, read thousands of reviews, and a good deal more. Plus, we're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we have an iPad edition available on the App Store. And if you fancy subscribing to our print edition, we have a special discount for our wonderful podcast listeners. All of you can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost to just £25.15. You can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash musicpodcast. Right, so what have we got in this month's magazine in the December issue? We'll take a listen to this first. Right. Well, that's, if that sounds a little bit left field, don't worry. We're not doing a piece on early 90s electronica. Um, that track was actually the beloved song, The Sun Rising, which, as I say, was 1990 it was released. And what we're interested in there is that voice you could hear, or the music, was actually sampled from Hildegard's Oyukari. 
Um, there was actually a little bit of um, uh, legal wrangling which followed that because I don't think Beloved had ticked all the boxes before they actually pinched the track and they actually had to kind of pay recompense to the original singers and the record label. But that's, that's a long way back in the past. And actually the group Orbital, a couple of years later, also um, sampled the same bit of music for their song Belfast. Interesting oh, enough. There you go, some pop culture knowledge. <laughs> anyway, where this is taking us to is um, Hildegard von Bingen, whose music that was, the 12th century composer, is our composer of the month this month. And um, Fiona Maddox, who was erstwhile editor of this magazine, in fact, the founding editor, takes a look at her life and her music. There's an awful lot about Hildegard that we don't know Um because it's right back in kind of eight centuries ago, there's, um, and things were fairly murky in those days. What we do know is that she was a polymath, that music wasn't just her only forte, that she kind of also made nature notes. Um, she was an expert on language, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and her music is very important. Um, she was the first, effectively, the sort of first composer that we know of whose, no, whose music has stayed with us to this day and kind of in a formalised form. Um, and a lot of it is very, very beautiful. Mm. And in this piece, as I say, Fiona Maddox um, takes a look, not just at Hildegard herself and her life history. We actually do know a little bit about her life history, what she did. She was a nun. Um, she originally um, lived in seclusion, and she broke away from that. And then she set up her own, her own um, nunnery. And from there, she actually mixed with kind of the rich and famous. And actually, that's where she had a lot of influence um, on social circles and cultural circles in her day. Um, and what uh, Fiona Maddox doesn't just do is doesn't just look at the history of Hildegard von Bingen. She also looks at the recent reappraisal of her music, which began in about the 1970s, early 1980s, and how it's kind of come back into the sort of musical sphere and how we can appreciate it today. Hmm. If it's sung well, her music can be some of the most beautiful I've ever heard in concert. But it's often um, it's often kind of planted in programmes and not quite delivered with the kind of beautiful open sound world I think because it's incredible writing um despite being friends oh so long ago yeah I wonder if it's another case of location mattering like where you hear it mm, might make a difference that's so true well. actually yeah mm. I think I've, I've kind of probably kind of not helped this myself just by actually choosing that particular track to go for a lot of it is kind of imagined as being this sort of floaty music to relax to and sort of take you into another world but actually of course we should also be looking at the music and its own right and and kind of assessing its merits rather than just putting it back on the kind of on the background and, mm. and drinking a glass of wine to it <laughs> on a Friday evening or whatever. It does actually, it's very well crafted music as mm. well. And it's perfect for kind of readapting with different f like styles of music as you showed with that track particularly because it's so it's so versatile really. Absolutely, brilliant. So as I say, Hildegard is um, our composer of the month in the December issue. On the front cover of the December issue you'll rather tantalisingly see the 50 greatest composers ever <laughs> voted for by today's composers. Now, I'm not going to say anything about that because that would be a bit of a spoiler. I'm going to let people buy it and read it. Um, all I'll give away is that Hildegard is actually in that list of 50 as well, and I'm going to say no more. But yes, it's a big 13-page feature about the 50 greatest composers who ever lived as voted by today's composers. It is brilliant. 
Michael, you're going to tell me about our recording of the month. I am indeed. So this month's recording of the month is uh, a fabulous disc by an extraordinary young pianist called Andre Gugnin. Um, we may not be so familiar with him here. Uh, he's a Russian pianist, but he won the Sydney International Piano Competition fairly recently. Um, this is his first disc for Hyperion, and it features uh, Shostakovich's uh, Piano Sonatas Numbers 1 and 2, uh, the 24 Preludes, and a delightful little nocturne um, a piano transcription from The Limpid Stream. Um, it, it is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, Fleet-fingered is, is not the term for his, his pianism. Let's have a quick listen to this 25-second movement. This is the fifth of the 24 preludes. <laughs> That's Andre Gugnin playing the piano, uh, Hyperion Shostakovich. Uh, that was from the 24 Preludes. Um, the review mentions the fact that uh, Gugnin can find surprising poetry in this music because it is quite challenging music. And I spoke to Andre on the phone a couple of weeks ago and asked him about the challenges in the music. And he said, actually, the main challenge is to reveal the beauty in the music because you know, he knows it's there. He's just got to sort of drill down to find it. And I think he absolutely does. Yeah, I guess because it's probably, it's so technical to play. I mean, that was Fleet Finkin. <laughs> it's obscenely fast. And steam it's coming just, out of the piano. <laughs> but it's so seamless. It's yeah. incredible. Actually, it was interesting when you said there about um, how you having to kind of find the beauty within it because it's kind of guised in this amazing technicality. Danny Driver said the same thing about mm. Ligeti in this issue as well. He said that he, I mean, they're the some of the most the most difficult pieces for piano. And you've kind of, but he said within that is incredible, incredible musicality, but it, it's kind of assumed to just be this technical feat. Mm. I think there's a piece in the for the future of the magazine at some mm. point, isn't there? These fiendishly difficult pieces, which actually also sometimes they're presented just as etudes, like the Godowski mm. Chopin etudes, etc. But which also take artistry to bring their beauty out as well. And kind of what is the secret yeah. to doing that? Definitely. Mm. And I think it's the same for the listener, isn't it? Getting beyond that boundary of oh god, this sounds difficult, yeah. <laughs> and actually finding that that way into the sort of beauty of it. Brilliant. So Freya. You're going off to the opera for us. <laughs> I am. Uh, the naughty operas. So in this month's magazine, we are talking about opera age ratings um, in response to the news that um, some American opera companies have started labelling their operas with age ratings similar to those found in the film industry. Um, so in the Seattle Opera's case, they put on Beezy's Carmen, which obviously is quite raunchy. And they did a particularly, I think it was quite a graphic version of it, and they kind of flagged it for violence against women and it being sexually explicit and smoking cigarettes on stage. Initially, I found this quite um, a little buttoned up and a little unnecessary, potentially, also because in the film industry nowadays, age guidelines are so often ignored with streaming and things like that. Anyone mm -hmm. can access anything. Um, and I, um, I have a slight problem that it might push off potential newcomers to the opera, because anything that kind of closes off barriers and says, no, you can only come to this when you're of age, mm. um, of course. But then you do think about it, and actually the issues being put on stage are sometimes incredibly problematic. Um, and perhaps that should be transferred even over to the theatre and like musical theatre. I was thinking over to Avenue Q and Book of Mormon and things mm, like that, true. which are, I mean, I went to Avenue Q when I was far too young. And it's because it it's all puppets, mm. it's all puppetry. 
Um, but it's quite explicit, isn't it? I mean, it's filthy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I remember when I was a, a young teenager, we went innocently to a, a to a theatre, a play in the theatre mm-hmm. called Having a Ball, um, and there was no age rating applied there, no warnings or anything like mm-hmm. that. And I sat between my mum and dad, and the play turned out to be about vasectomies. Oh, God. And there was actors wandering around the stage with all sorts of bits flying about all over the place. And I wanted to be anywhere else rather than sat between my mum and dad at the time. I really wish that I'd had an advisory (laughs) content. So So it might even have the opposite effect. You say it might turn people off, but it might actually turn people on to come into the opera. They think, oh, I shouldn't think I could be challenged in that way. Or it would be that kind of experience. So you might even get new audiences as a result. Because actually opera can be quite risque and often I mean I think one of our choices last month there was a, an image in the magazine or maybe it was this month and it was it total was nudity bare flesh. yeah absolutely right and I think maybe people don't realise that about opera they might yeah. think it's a certain sort of thing it's they're going to get on yeah. stage but you know actually it's it's all kinds of experiences and... I think we, um, and, uh, with uh, a lot of operas these days come in t- under criticism for their productions for being kind of the, the whim of the director the mm. sort of the director kind of pushing the limits for the sake of pushing the limits. I think if directors are going to do that, you could justify actually having opera age ratings for that, you think, because there's going to be a lot of people who think they are going to be just going to a very kind of traditional performance of Carmen. Yes, okay, the plot itself yeah. is quite raunchy, but it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be, you know, nudity or anything like that, because it was, after all, written in the 19th century. And so if the kind of... If the directors are going to express themselves in this way, a lot of opera girls do actually have the right to know that beforehand. Yeah, right. But then I guess as well, even, you know, there's a nudity in the kind of the slightly raunchier side of things. But actually, even with opera, there's a lot of racist tropes um, and slightly problematic elements in that respect. And actually, when it's sung to you in a foreign language, a lot of those can mm. kind of go under the radar. But I guess with the addition of subtitles and things like that, actually, the language it becomes much more apparent to the audience naturally and that can kind of make you sit up and be like well that's, <laughs> that's it's not right inappropriate. <laughs> I've been enjoying this and yeah exactly yeah. well I can assure you that there's no bad language or nudity <laughs> in our first listen which we're about to listen to now Right, just to introduce this section to new listeners to our podcast, first listen is when we all choose one disc each or one recording each and say why we've been enjoying it. It's always a new recording as well, one which has been released within the last couple of months. But before we kick off with sharing our favourite new recordings, we'd like to tell you about how you can get involved in sharing your musical discoveries with us and fellow readers. Plus, you can hear our choice of the latest recordings on our playlist curator page. Once you're there, just look for The Playlist. And don't forget... If you send us what you've been listening to at music at classical-music.com, you could be in with a chance of being published on our Music to My Ears page in the magazine itself. So go on then, Freya, you're first up. What have you been listening to? So I have brought along uh, the new disc from Gabriella Montero, who we recently spoke to in the magazine. Um, and she's re- released um, an amazing album on Orchid Classics with uh, Ravel's Piano Concerto alongside her own piano concerto, which is called the Latin Concerto. It's the first time this has been recorded. Um, And I just think it's absolutely brilliant. It's particularly her concerto. It's really inspired by her Venezuelan and South American heritage. Um, And it's got that kind of similar jazzy infusion that you kind of find a little bit in Ravel. So I think they are 
the perfect. <laughs> it's a perfect programming choices, both very virtuosic, um, really inventive and well put together. So we're actually going to listen to um, the first movement from her Latin piano concerto. So that was the first movement from Gabriella Montero's Piano Concerto Number no. 1. Um, and that's with Gabriella Montero herself playing with the Orchestra of the Americas under Carlos Miguel Prieto. Excellent. I should just add at this stage that Gabriella Montero, up until this point, has been largely known as both a pianist and an improviser. And so actually um, formally composing works is a fairly new thing. Um, her first disc was actually called Ex... Or her first work, which she recorded, was called Ex Patria, which is a short work for piano and orchestra, and that was about four or five years ago. Um, and so this is going to be, this is an exciting new development to see what she's going to produce in future years. Yes, yeah, definitely. Wow, Particularly with someone that's so so skilled with improvisation, she clearly has quite a hand for mm. yeah, yeah. <laughs> creating those incredible, and I, I just think this is brilliant. It has kind of those South American dance rhythms in, and it's, it's a wide-ranging piece. It kind of explores lots of different sound worlds, and I'm a big fan. Excellent. I should add that the sleeve notes for that expatria disc are quite brilliant. <laughs> by oh, the are way. they, Jamie? What's that? <laughs> I can't think. <laughs> right. Michael, what have you got? <laughs> I've been listening to a new release on Capriccio uh, of the uh, East German composer Hans Eisler. Uh, he was uh, exiled to the US uh, and worked in, in film, but he worked in film in, in East Germany as well and in Europe. Um, this is a fantastic recording um, by the MDR Symphony in Leipzig under Jürgen Bruns. It's of his Leipzig Symphony, which is in fact um, sort of a patchwork, if you like, of, of film music that he wrote. It was commissioned by... Um, Leipzig Symphony in 1959 and he died in 1962 and it was unfinished mm-hmm. uh, it was in fact not premiered until 1998 because it was finished by a, a young composer called uh, Tilo Medek maybe not so young by the time it was premiered um, it, it's absolutely brilliant it's absolutely barnstorming it features music from uh, an East German propaganda film that he did uh, films that he did in Hollywood like Deadline at Dawn uh, and European films like The Sorcerers of Salem and Bellamy this is the first movement uh, this is Vorspiel und Idil. So that was from uh, Hans Eisler's uh, Leipzig Symphony, uh, performed by the MDR Symphony Orchestra Leipzig, conducted by Jürgen Bruns, and that's on the Capriccio. Fiery fun. It is. Good fun. <laughs> really good fun. Excellent. Right, I'm going to go for something a little bit more restrained for my choice. <laughs> Though still very, very beautiful. Um, my choice is a disc called Magnificat, which pretty does pretty much what it says on the tin <laughs> or on the packet. Um, it's the Choir of St. John's College, Cambridge, under their Director of Music, Andrew Nethsinger. And it is a range of different settings of the Magnificat and Nunc Dimittis from across the years. Um, I'm going to play a little bit first and then I'm going to explain you which one it is.
That was the Nunc Dimittis from Herbert House's Gloucester Service, um, written in 1946, I think it was. Um, and what's going on in this disc is that Andrew Nessinger, the director of music, has chosen settings of the Magnificat and Nunc Dimittis, or canticles as they're known as, from various stages, which have relevance to various stages of his own career. It's kind of quite an autobiographical mm. um, recording. So you've got stuff, they've got one connected to Truro, a couple connected to Gloucester, um, a couple connected to St John's itself, which are the three places where Andrew has been um, director of music. Now, the Howells one I chose there for two reasons, partly because he's my favourite composer, <laughs> but also Howells was um, not just um, a chorister and based at Gloucester Cathedral. He's a Gloucestershire lad as a youngster. Um, he also briefly served as organist at St John's College, Cambridge as well. So he yeah. kind of ticks two of the boxes. <laughs> Very nicely chosen. Um, yeah. And actually this this whole disc has, so it has Howells, it has Sumsian, it has Leighton, um, Gabriel Jackson, who of course is still with us today, writing fantastic settings today. Um, it's just um, as... As they have been of late, the St. John's College um, sound is absolutely glorious. Great concept for an album, that as well. <laughs> yeah. And it's, I ought to point out, it's not just for us choral boards. It actually, <laughs> it's a really lovely compilation which kind of works for, for all listeners, I would say. And on that glorious note, literally glorious, I'm afraid to say that brings us to the end of this month's podcast. Our fantastic jingles were composed by Christopher Maxim, and our podcast is produced here in Bristol by Ben Ewart and Jack Bateman. So it's goodbye from me, Frere and Michael. And there'll be a whole fresh new set of BBC Music Mag team members to chat next month about our Christmas issue. See you then, and goodbye. Bye. Goodbye. The BBC Music Magazine Podcast.